This is Gross Anatomy, where pop culture meets health culture. Let's get to it. Hello, good morning. Morning, good morning. So, so Dr. Cohen and I are looking pretty sleepy in our homes, and our guest here is looking pretty awake and sprightly. So we oh. asked, what's happening over there? Oh, well, I'll tell you, I almost got T-boned this morning driving through San, uh, like through Beverly Hills, so that would wake you up before you have coffee. So yeah, I'm a little bit awake. <laughs> the adrenaline shot up and you're yeah. good to go now. Definitely, definitely. <sighs> awesome. Well, we're excited to have you on. We appreciate you taking time on a Saturday morning to chat with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. I think this has been a long time trying to like make this happen, but you know, life kind of gets the best of us. So I'm glad the opportunity came up. Yes. Well, welcome to Gross Anatomy. Today we have on Dr. Daniel Niku. Am I saying your last name right? Niku, but yeah. Niku. Dr. Daniel Niku. Dr. Daniel Niku is an obstetrician and gynecologist in private practice in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. He also works as a clinician at a federally funded medical clinic in downtown LA. Mm -hmm. It's called Angeles Community Health Center, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. He has twice uh, been recognized and awarded as a top student and educator. After completing his residency, he achieved board certification through the American Board of, can I just say, A-O-B-O-G yeah, uh, in 2021. It's early. He stays engaged via his interactive blog that focuses on women's health, including obstetrical and gynecological care. Very nice. Good job. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. The blog was new to me. I would love to start with hearing a bit about, well, also how you and uh, Dr. Cohen know each other and then the blog. I'll start with, I think that Dr. Cohen, Dr. Niku connections is actually a very interesting one. I think when I was in college and this goes back 2000, end of college, 2008, 2009, I was doing like the volunteer program at Cedars and they had an opportunity where you can shadow different departments I had an interest in general surgery at the time, and I somehow got matched with Dr. Cohen at the time. I'm not sure if I can say this part, but he snuck me into a surgery one time. I don't know if he remembers. Um, I've done that too with some of my students, but you know that's part of the learning experience. Wait, I, I actually snuck you into a surgery? I or think were you allowed to go into surgeries back I then? I think I was allowed to go into... I'm, I don't remember. All I know is that I saw one of the coolest things. He was doing a... I think breast tissue removal and he was asking me all the muscles of the pectoral region and I'm like I have no idea what I'm looking at and I think that just further verified that I had an interest in some kind of surgery and at the time uh, it was only a few short weeks but it was very memorable for me and I think I stayed in touch with Dr. Cohen from time to time especially as I was applying for med school I didn't go to the States, I actually went to the Caribbean for medical school. Oh. It was a very long process to get there and um, worthwhile and then residency in New York. And when I actually got back here, it was great to reconnect um, from time to time and to get advice, especially more recently. Like It's nice to know that you have a general surgeon that specializes in cancer subspecialties, especially like thyroid and breast. And he's been a good mentor along that way, albeit now a colleague, but I would always, you know, consider him a mentor and someone who firmly established my, my foot in medicine a little bit more. I love that. 
I, you know, but yet you decided not to follow in my footsteps, though, right? <laughs> so, I must have scared you off uh, from general surgery or cancer surgery or something, right? Uh, I don't think you scared me off. I think the surgery part was further entrenched in me. Like it was further verified. I want to do surgery. I think the part, and again, medicine, my journey to medicine was either deciding between general surgery and pediatrics, two very, very different fields. And I wanted to find the common grounds. And as I did my training in med school, I realized that obstetrics and gynecology had this continuity of care, as well as this opportunity to be a kind of a jack of all trades. You're in the office, you're doing surgery, you see long-term care. So it kind of allowed me to see the elements that I really, really enjoyed. And, you know, general surgery was one that, you know, allowed me to see that a little bit more, at least for the the gynecological surgical part. So do you feel that there's, when you say like a continuity of care, Dr. Cohen, are your patients kind of like you see them for a short amount of time, but then once they're better, you're not seeing them anymore. Whereas Dr. Niku, you're kind of keeping these patients either way. You want to answer that first, uh, Dr. Niku? I think, I think it depends on the practitioner. To be honest, I think maybe my experience was that I only, I guess when you're in training, you only see like the patients only for a short period of time. So to be honest, I can't generalize and say that patients don't stay with their general surgeons. But my impression was that some do while they take care of the patient for the acuity of the issue. And then, you know, they go back into the world better than they were before that. But I don't know, maybe Dr. Cohen has a different practice. I'm not sure. So I, I do a little bit as a, as a cancer surgeon, surgical oncologist, some my general surgery patients, yeah, they tend to disappear after, you know, taking care of their acute illness. But my cancer surgery patients, I tend to see those patients forever, you know, to kind of just follow them along. And then even some of my general surgery patients wind up kind of, you know, finding other issues and they wind up just kind of staying with me and figuring out ways to keep coming back to me. So uh, but certainly it's a little different than OBGYN where you're, you know, you're these women kind of their whole lives to some degree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry. Allie, I want to, I want to bug, uh, cause it actually, you know, I, I still run when, when Dan was my student, the program was a much less formal program. And then it's kind of become over the last 10 years, a really formal program where, where we, you know, have this group of students and we meet with them and we talk to them. And one of the topics that always comes up, and and Dan is a testament to the success of it, is you know if you're having trouble getting into a school in the U.S., uh, you know a standard MD school in the U.S., what are your options, and and what do you think, and and what are your thoughts, Dan, about the Caribbean medical schools, especially where you went, you went to St. George's, which which I've actually visited a couple of times. I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on all of that. Uh, so, and your journey a little bit, and hear your journey. You know how, how you how that happened to you. Sure. Um, growing up, uh, ignored. You know, just like my focus was try to get to med school, and the I think the biggest mis I don't want to say the biggest mistake, but one of the errors that I made in college, I went to USC for undergrad, is that I got there and I was like gun hose, like yeah, I got to do what I got to do to get into med school, and. I I think I overwhelmed myself. There doesn't need to be a rhyme and reason where you have to go, in my opinion, you have to go to undergrad and do two sciences per quarter, per semester, and do general chem and general bio. Like, I made that, honestly, I shouldn't have done that. I took too many science classes. I didn't know how to study effectively. 
and it came back and bit me in the butt a little bit um, and it hurt my grades. And it took a little bit of time and introspection to understand that the journey was going to be a little bit longer, but I, I rushed it a little bit. And it wasn't really until, so I, I did four years of undergrad and then I went and got a master's degree at Keck in global health, which gave me a little bit more of an understanding what med school studying was like, where there, while there's a lot of classes at once, it requires discipline and how to focus on different topics and how to then integrate that. For me to integrate, it wasn't just sitting there and studying that. And, and, and I hope I don't upset okay. you, but you did that extra degree because you had applied once to med school and not gotten in? Correct. Yes. I didn't get in. My MCAT scores weren't that great. So I, and I'm not afraid to say it, I was in therapy at the time going through like my general anxiety and my therapist at this guy was a nice Jewish guy. And he's like, listen, if you have an opportunity and even a slight amount of your foot is through the door, why the hell would you not take it? And that like, I thought I needed to be in the States. And while yes, being in the States really helps obviously with your residency, it's very, very competitive. Mm -hmm. I realized that if I don't take this chance on myself now, I would regret it for the rest of my life. So I applied, I went to one of the better Caribbean medical schools. It kicked my ass. It really kicked me to the ground. Like they, the schools are designed to really take in a lot of students and filter out as many as they can. At least that was my experience. And it bare boned you to the, it just bare boned you. And you have to rebuild yourself to a degree where you feel confident. And I went into my rotations in my third and fourth year of med school, I think better than most uh, med students that were from the States that I rotated with. We worked harder. Again, this is not against US schools, just for my own personal experience. And that discipline and that understanding really translated into residency and residency was a whole different ball game, especially as a man in a woman's world where it's predominantly women now in obstetrics and gynecology. So you, I've learned a lot of different perspectives on how to practice medicine emotionally and intellectually and to get there was a long journey and here now I think I've benefited most from having such a well-rounded experience from different perspectives. That's yeah. really interesting. I think that's good advice for almost anything like long-term goal is yeah. that it sounds like you don't want to burn yourself out at the beginning. It sounds like you were just kind of burning yourself out and then you had to pause and make this long-term yeah. game plan. I think, I think one advice that I would give students, and I think we all hear it, is that it's a long road. Yeah, it's a long road, but you got to love what you do. Like, I don't think there was a day in residency where I regretted my decision about going into obstetrics and gynecology. I woke up every day. I'm like, okay, got to get to work. We got to do this. Even now, it's brutal. My life can be, I think medicine, and I think Dr. Cohen can attest to this also, is that as practitioners in whatever field of medicine we are, it's hard. You know, mine is just a, you know, a little bit unpredictable. Three o'clock in the morning, like calls to do deliveries are hard, but the reality is I love what I do. I really, really enjoy it. It's fascinating to take care of women, get them from their adolescence to their menopausal stages in life is such a broad, fascinating thing that as a man, I'm beginning to appreciate more and more but as a practitioner it's something that we can provide all women that we can really need to educate on as time goes on 
That's amazing. Unless Dr. Cohen has a question. I have some, a lot of questions about that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. What does it feel like to be a man in a field that serves women? I feel like there are not a lot of fields that are in that order. That's really rare, I think. I think it's probably the only one that really, yeah. I mean, urology, everyone thinks that urology deals with both men and women also. So for, if you're, you're, you're thinking about anatomy, my uncle, ironically enough, his name is Dr. Daniel Niku, but he's a urologist. So <laughs> funny enough, sometimes I get patients sent here and they're confused and then they realize that there's a misunderstanding there, but your parents had to name you after him just to they, make they it. Had to, yeah. it just happened to be that way. Um, <laughs> It takes a little level, it takes a level of emotional intelligence. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I'm still learning, you know, about how to communicate, um, especially in this world where there's a vulnerability as a practitioner and there's a vulnerability among women, especially with the Me Too movement and understanding how to respect women's autonomy and women's rights and women's health. It's an ever evolving thing. And it's so important to keep your foot to the ground and really listen to your patients, especially in this field. While everything is five-star reviews and I'm lucky to have a lot of patients that are happy with my care, I've had a lot that are not. And that just, you take that information from every experience and really try to apply it even better to the next, because this is a very vulnerable place. Being in a doctor's office, let alone a male provider's office while that may be the old school it's more new school that there are a lot more women who are obgyns i'm like a dying breed a little bit but it mm -hmm. takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of respect to women to really be in this field so i try to stay as humble as i can every day amazing during your residency what what percentage of the residents were female versus male in, in obgyn so I was at a small community program where, in where were you, Staten Island, Island University. Staten Island University, yeah. You know that's funny, and I'm going to cut you off there a little bit. That's so fine. that my very first, I went to Downstate uh, in yeah. Brooklyn, so SUNY. So one of our affiliates was Staten Island University Hospital. So my very very first rotation as a third year medical student was OBGYN at Staten Island University Hospital. That was my very first rotation. And I loved it. And I loved being at Staten Island University Hospital. I loved OBGYN. I loved them. But interestingly, I can't remember any of the female OBGYNs. All the attendings, all the docs were these male, you know, yeah. big Italian guys with names like Arbucci and something like that. Yeah, you know? that's right. <laughs> and uh, some of the residents I remember were women. And in fact, I remember I got amniotic fluid in my face during a delivery because I was had to rupture the membranes and the woman was pushing and I and I was being proctored or mentored by a female resident and the two of us got saturated and drenched and we're just cracking up and that's um, right. Yeah. So you were there. You were in Staten Island, eh? Oh, so I was in Staten Island and it you're right. It was very Italian, very Russian. It's it's very different now. Or when I went there, obviously it's changed. When I was there, there were four residents a year. When I was a final uh final year resident, when I was a chief resident, it was me and three females and then two other males. So a total of three males in the entire program. Now I think every year except for one year, they have one male, I think. And even at Cedars here, they have seven residents a year and they are, well, that's 28, they have four or five. 
it's very different, very different. And so, so you obviously, when you're seeing a patient, you always have a chaperone, I imagine, with you, or even maybe two or something like that. Like in the olden days, a man would just walk in, take care of the woman. What is it like these days? Um, it, regardless of man or woman, there should always be a chaperone with the provider. That's I'm good lucky to know. Enough. Yeah, honestly, it, it doesn't matter. It should be both. It should be offered. So I generally offer my my patients. I'm lucky that I'm actually I proctor PA students from the USC uh, PA program. So I have them rotating with me. So either when I go in the room, they're there with me, or I'm having them do the exam if the patient allows it. And so, and they're female. Um, but the times that I don't, if the patient says, no, I'm okay with it. You always, you document that and you make it aware that, you know, there's an opportunity. Now, if I miss that, you know, um, I, I try not to miss that. I think that's very important to make the patient feel safe in the room. Occasionally I've had a patient say, cause I'll often have, you know, I, I often have an entourage with me when I'm seeing patients. Occasionally a patient will say to me, I just want to be alone with you. You know, I don't want anybody else in the room. And then I kind of sometimes feel a little uncomfortable. Do you, do you ever kind of get that too? Not really. I'll, I'll be honest, not really. I don't think I let it get to me, I, but I get it. There has been times that yes, but I try to understand uh, why. And then I, if I feel uncomfortable, I say, listen, um, perhaps we should, especially if they're undressed, I would like tell them to get dressed or something like that. You don't want to be in a vulnerable situation where something can be said or done from either party. So you want to be as respectful as possible. Yeah, I was going to ask as far as making women comfortable who maybe haven't seen a man before and and like are a bit nervous, what are the first steps when they come into your office? Because I, I don't know, if, maybe like really in a pinch, I've seen a male OB, but typically I also have only seen women. And that being said, that's not to say in my experience, maybe I shouldn't be so selective because some of them were just as cut and dry or abrasive as as honestly, any male doctor I've seen. Listen, honestly, I think it's 50-50. I think I've had women who say that they've gone to women and they didn't like their experience. I've had women who said that they've only exclusively gone to women and they've just in a bind, like you said. Mm -hmm. I, I think it, it goes down to one, perception, and then two, what your comfort level is, you know, not... Mm -hmm all provider if you made every man and woman the same it really comes down to personality i really take time with my patients i typically now see 20 to 24 patients a day in my office somewhere in that range and i'm very lucky because that took time to build but 20 patients a day means that do i have enough time in 15 minutes to sit there and educate a patient mm -hmm. you know those time slots are so i really try to take my time and i think that personality makes it comfortable for the patients and they want to stick around because they're feeling heard yeah. other times when you're seeing patients really quickly it may feel like you're being rushed and a lot of at least in my field patients don't want to feel rushed they want to be heard so there's a little bit of a balance there but listen I've even spent time half an hour with a patient and they come back to like, didn't like it. I mean, it's yeah, just- Yeah, I could just feel, and also people have personal experiences, right? Yeah. Like they may feel uncomfortable for their own reasons that are out of your control. So that exactly. makes sense. It exactly. just is interesting to think it can feel like a really vulnerable position to be in physically and <laughs> emotionally, but also is there a flip side of you? Men don't go regularly to a doctor where they sit naked. 
unless they have like a specific issue and not just naked, like naked with their genitals out. That's so uniquely female to be that vulnerable. Uh, yes. And I don't think I have any other comments for that because that's, <laughs> it's just, yeah, it just is what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. Like when we tell our patients to do an annual exam, um, the perception is that you need to get a pap smear every year, which is not necessarily true. The recommendations are every three to five years. Now, oh. some patients will come and say, hey, I want to get my pap smear anyways. Fine, get it. You know, we these are recommendations in medicine that we provide to patients so that we can create continuity and care to understand that from year to year, things can happen. So mm -hmm. we advise that so that we are ensuring good, proactive, healthy practices so that we don't miss something or that they have someone that they can go to every year. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, and then the also- Allie, the only equivalent is, is men coming in for like a hernia check, you know, so mm, which okay. I unfortunately see a lot of, you know, so- uh, so, you know, I'm often, I have my hands, you know, in men's scrotum. It's not uncommon. And then the patients that we don't operate on will come in a couple times a year to get checked to see, do they need surgery? Do they not need surgery? Or or men, you know, following up regularly with their urologist, but I, like your uncle, but, but, but I, that I don't do. Yeah. yeah, it's a very, very different thing. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's kind of situational, right? Not, or are you regularly getting checked for that? Right, Hernia? No, no. Honestly, I should be a better, I should be a better patient. I haven't been to my physical in about a year or so. So doctors, you heard it here you're first. Honestly, the worst patients. We're the worst patients. We're holding you accountable. We'll check Actually, in. Please, please do. Uh, have you been surprised at all? I mean, this might be like a blanket statement, but how little some women know about their own physical body, like their anatomy and their health. As a young woman, I've been surprised by me and my friends kind of learning like, oh, we didn't even know that's what that was called or. Yes and yes and no. I'm not surprised because the more I hear it. So I'm very lucky to be in both an affluent and affluent, non-affluent areas of the city. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of immigrant families that I see in the medical system from time to time who have no idea. And they're unfortunately just being told, this is what you need to do. Ironically enough, the same thing is happening in affluent communities. So like I went to a Jewish day school, you know, I remember that health class that we took, but that was in fourth grade. Like, <laughs> wow. Honestly, it, to me, it should not be fourth grade. It should be every year recounting the same topic and really reintroducing to both men and women what's going on. There's some like I'm on I'm on Instagram and, and TikTok. My marketing team has been trying to get me on that and because of that, a lot of the stuff that pops up is women who go around and saying, do you know where the vulva is? And they hold up a sign to men and they can't even identify. They think that the entire female genitalia is just vagina. And yeah. that's yeah, necessarily yeah. the case. And we take our information so, we absorb so much information from social media that we don't get from actual day-to-day -day understanding in our own schooling system. So I, I'm not... I'm not surprised, but I'm so worried that how do you educate an entire generation of women and men mm -hmm. about women and men health, men's health 
if they're not doing it in the classroom. So we try to, and I'm sure Dr. Cohen can attest to that, even like the simplest thing of understanding what a hernia is to understanding what a pap smear is, goes so far into really preventing bad things happening in medicine. Like our goal in medicine should be prevention, not constant acuity treatment. It should be to prevent things from happening. My TikTok has a lot of funny, what's her name, Hannah Burner. She was just like on the street, I think in New York, she kept stopping mostly men, but saying, how do you think women pee with a tampon in? And that every man was like, they have to take it out. They were all just so confused. And they were like, I've never thought about that. And she made it really funny and it was so interesting. Hannah and they were Burner. all like, so yeah, they were all so stressed about it. And then I was like, oh my God, the like none of them got it. There was, I think one guy who was like, that's a different hall. He was like, he understood. And every, but every other guy was like, I don't know. Yeah. So there's definitely some humor there, but it's also really real. Very, um, very. And then, you're making me think of so many things. Like the, the first time as a male, you know, as, during our med school and residency, we put in Foley catheters, urinary catheters uh, into patients. It's, it's much more straightforward putting it into a man. You just put it into the hole of the penis, right? Yeah. But it's, you know, the first time you do it in a female and you're like, you know, it's right in your face. You're kind of seeing everything. And even like the nurses sometimes um, watching them, you know, when they don't necessarily know where they're putting that catheter. It, the female nurses, I mean, sorry, they're male nurses too. But but even people who are used to doing it, you know, everybody's body's a little different. So it's, it's not always straightforward. But just talking about the human body, I don't know, Dan, if you had experiences with something as simple as the belly button, you know, the young like people don't realize like what that's all about. And some people have like the dirtiest, disgusting belly button with like years worth of wait, like wait. crud, like Back a giant up. ball of crud in there. And you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and that's not even the genitals, you know, that that's just the belly button, you know, and that like when you're prepping them for surgery and sometimes they wind up taking a tumor out of the belly button, just a dirt and gunk of years yeah. of buildup blows yeah. my mind, right? Oh, yeah. You oh, guys, yeah. this is really gross anatomy now. What is going on? Are there things I need to know about the belly button that I don't? So belly button is just a the belly button is just where the umbilical cord was and it's right. But what Dr. Cohen is referring to, like when we do like major open or laparoscopic surgery and we have to go in and around the belly button, you have to clean that out. You can't take a laparoscopic trocar and put it into a dirty space and then push that into the that's the last thing you want to do, just infecting the abdominal cavity. So we have to clean it out. So that's I remember a laparoscopic. Why are you putting things in people's belly buttons? <laughs> I'm for surgery. So... <laughs> for surgery. For but surgery. like, what do they do? So the trocar is a device that allows us to first, we have to fill the belly with gas. Okay. So that we can do minimally invasive surgery mm-hmm. and use the belly button because it, ha- it has the fewest layers of entry uh, compared to most other places in an anatomical body. Mm-hmm. So we use, and it's a good point because it allows us to have a central point that we can look around. Okay. And then we clean that area so that we don't have to introduce our body with foreign bodies further in. I'll tell you my story. When I was doing <laughs> my gynecological cancer rotation in residency, the female gynoc was very particular about this. She would literally, when the patient was asleep, would take like alcohol swabs. And I remember one time we just got this big junk and I'm like, imagine if this cancer patient had this sitting inside if we pushed it in. Oh it's my like God, like bacteria leaky, and like, yeah. 
disgusting. That's, that's good. To, people, if you're listening, <laughs> clean your belly button. Belly button. Yeah, clean your belly button. <laughs> Do you clean guys regularly clean yours? Yes. Because of this? Yeah. I have a piercing, so I do because I'm just like conscious of it. So that's the plus of get your belly button pierced. Unless you're Dr. Cohen's daughter, then you have to run it by him. But I'm (laughs) saying, but everyone else should get their belly button pierced. Actually, I have a funny belly button piercing story. So, and then I have another thing I want to share, but Liat, my eldest daughter, who's the whole reason I know Allie, Allie and Liat were at UC Berkeley together. So Liat, as a, I don't know if you know this, Allie, Liat had a belly button piercing, no. uh, I think in high school or something like that. And I, I wasn't a fan. I wasn't happy she did it, whatever, but she did it nonetheless. And, you know, Liat liked to wear bikini bathing suits. And I remember one time Izzy, who's our youngest, who's like practically, I think she's 10 years younger than you guys, right? Yeah, yeah she's, about... she's 10 years younger than you guys. So um, someone bought Izzy a bikini bathing suit and Izzy got all scared and nervous because she thought that that meant that she had to get a piercing oh my God. because she would see Liat with this belly button piercing and it freaked her out she's like oh you know she's um, like that's gonna hurt <laughs> then I'm gonna have to right. clean it yeah but what I wanted to talk about you were talking about sex ed stuff a little bit and and I've talked about it a lot and and um on the podcast in the past, not recently, and we've even done episodes on it. For a long time, my favorite TV show, and I'm still a huge fan of it, um, related to sex education. I'm curious if either of you guys, you know, if anything's particularly coming to mind right now. I love that show. It is- No, not sex education. No, no. Although that's a great show too. Oh, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) I'm talking about an animated show. Any guesses? Oh, Big Mouth. Big Mouth. Yes. Yeah. Love Big Mouth. Big Mouth, I think, especially the first season, should be required watching for high school kids and even younger kids. As as crazy and weird as it is, I think it really, like, had I had Big Mouth as a kid, it would have let me know that I'm not so weird and wacky. That's yeah. why I was a big fan of Big Mouth. What 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 do you think of it, uh, both of you guys? I I stopped watching after I think the fourth season. It kind of like deviated away from what I loved about the show. But honestly, I watched the first three seasons at least three times. And I catch something new every time, especially the episode. I guess I'm biased as a gynecologist where the episodes on female anatomy were so tastefully done, so humorously done that if if I had that, I would succeed at that woman walking around in the streets with telling me what is the like different parts of the vulva, the clitoris, the vagina, like all these. It is so well done. That's the kind, I agree with you. That's the kind of stuff we need in our education system. I was going to say, I listened to a book that, was recommended to me. I watched maybe one episode of Big Mouth. Some guys I knew watched it and I, it was really funny and really informative. I did the, there should be like, I, you guys should make a, a kid's version that they could like play in class because these teachers are probably like, it's like my PE teacher who can't even speak is trying to talk about women's health and we're like, uh, he's so uncomfortable. Um, you guys should make like a nice video that we can send out to the California schools that's like a little more warm and i'm writing this down as yeah start with a tiktok i swear everything so start doing tiktoks on it and then eventually you guys are going to have some animated version you can send to schools i like i think that would be so nice because the pe teachers are very uncomfortable out there um i listened to a book called come as you are i forget i don't know if you've heard of it 
uh who wrote it it was really good um emily nagoski i definitely it was a good listen and a lot of my female friends have listened to it not enough but she starts like chapter one just talking about anatomy she's like here is the parts of your vagina. The whole thing isn't your vagina and you can't even usually see your vagina. Like she gets like right away into um, anatomy and then talks a lot about just sexual experiences. Oh, just because X doesn't mean Y. Cause like, I think there's a lot of shame for women around. Oh, I'm like wet or I'm not wet or whatever that means. And she was like, just because you're wet doesn't mean you have to be, something has to be, exciting you and vice versa if you're something's exciting you and you're not wet that doesn't mean it's not exciting you because i think people get so in their head about what's physically happening so she gets into like the science of that whereas i think right now it's just kind of we're all talking about it emotionally so it was nice to have her break it down really well so that would be a good book um either a listen or like something to recommend to women who are less educated or a little uncomfortable with themselves i think I mean, this might be a controversial statement to say, um, but screw it, I'll say it anyways. I think we've done a terrible job at creating a world where women feel comfortable, and men, let alone, feel comfortable with their sexuality. Yes, we have a great movement going on with, you know, with LGBTQ community. You know, we're trying to create a more inclusive environment, but at the crux of it all, we've created way too much shame when it revolves around, especially women's health, to have these kinds of conversations is maybe spanning 50, 60 years in our educational system. That fear or that religiousness or societal judgment that comes with talking about sex, Mm -hmm. you know, when is it- Which is so like everybody's here because of it. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre because like when you sit there and you're like, when I was in residency, there was an 11 year old that was raped and was pregnant, you know, like that kind of stuff. Everyone has their own situations and good or bad domestic violence or not, whatever it is. It is so scary when you have young women coming in, 16 years old, 17 years old, and they're pregnant and unsure and not supported. Or when you have young women who are 27, 28 years old and undergoing domestic violence, it's so scary that women are going and getting plan B because their partner chose not to use a condom. And even though they were in consensual, a consensual sexual relationship, she didn't want that. Like that shame and that fear and that respect that comes from both men and women are completely ignored and it there's a shame around it and that needs to change that totally needs to change i agree yeah but and that's you know getting back to big mouth again that i Allie, it, it, the fact that you only saw one episode i really think you should watch more because the first episode is more male centric but it gets you know there's really great episodes about girls with their periods girl with yeast infection girls being horny and turned on i mean it's that, that's what i i mean it really i just love the show in terms of how well they portrayed sex and and talk about it i mean my kids are embarrassed that i am such a big fan of it and talk about it because it's i mean it's really the whole show is basically about you know puberty and sex and learning about sex but it's it's really done tastefully almost like you know the perfect sex ed class a little bit and there's the gym teacher i don't know if you saw that at all there's the oh, teacher so it's exactly funny. yeah so it's funny you even mentioned that 
Coach Steve. You know, there, there's the. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, um, ours was also the football coach. Why is it always the coach? It's the PE teacher who's the football coach. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I'll definitely watch. I I think those are such good points to make it, especially with younger women. If you talk about it younger, they'll know what's right and wrong and like what to ask for or tell. I think that not talking about it is creating such a a hazard, honestly, for younger women that just don't know what they should or shouldn't say and they feel shameful to ask questions i just am like a big googler thank god i grew up when i did so i i remember the first time if i had something wrong i didn't even know there was possibilities like you get your period and then you're like we're good right and then i i was abroad and i had a yeast infection i was like what do i what is this i had to google it and I, I was in France and then I went into the pharmacy there, which, apparently, you know, which was great because their pharmacies are great. And she didn't speak English. So then she was just like miming to me. She's like, itchy. And I'm like, what? So we were having this weird, I was like, I don't know, I'm 18. <laughs> but it shouldn't have been so. Maybe had I learned that those things could happen, I wouldn't have had to Google it. I was like, I have no idea what yeah could be wrong with me and and just like googling it and then it's in french and i'm like looking up the instructions it comes with a suppository i'm like what the hell is this she didn't obviously speak to me in english to tell me the whole thing is so confusing and without feeling comfortable talking about it now even my friends like my age and older i'm 27 or will talk about stuff and i'll be like oh that sounds like something you should get looked at they because they don't know they've never heard of these infections or they've never heard of bv but maybe they've had it for a long time or they've all these things so it's pretty wild that we just kind of learn about your period and then you're done yeah or let alone not learn about it at all because yeah Yeah, some people don't know about it it's true let me let me ask you ali i'm gonna ask you a question what is the normal cycle for women to have their period like what you mean is like the days, like 28 days or something like that? 28 days. In actuality, 28 days is the average. So it could actually be anywhere between 21 to 35 days. So not everyone's, everyone comes, like when I have women come say, my period was irregular this month. I'm like, what do you mean by irregular? They're like, <laughs> well, days, la- yeah. <laughs> yeah, like last, last month it was 28 days, but this month it was 29 days. I'm like, okay, but that, but people don't know that. Like women don't know that men who are taking care of their wives don't know that. They don't know. And it's, it's okay. When it becomes irregular is when it's, you're bleeding for like a month straight, or you don't have your period for four to five months. And then all of a sudden it comes, those are what's irregular, not yeah. one or two days, but no one really talks about it. No one really knows about it. They just assume what they hear or know from the knowledge that's passed down from their mom or their sister. Yeah, it's mom usually. And sometimes moms are like, I have a lot of friends whose moms are like not comfortable talking about it. So they just don't know anything. Yeah. Without Google, they would have no clue. And they, there is, so I think that that's a good point. I actually, I think in my mid twenties, I had gotten rid of I had an IUD for a little and got it out and my period really changed and I was really nervous about it. I was like, oh, is this like, okay? Like, should I be checking up on that? I felt so scared. Is it okay if I'm bleeding longer? Does that mean I'm like losing more eggs? Am I going to be less fertile or something? It's just hard to know what's, and I still like, sometimes I'm like, do I call my doctor every time that happens? Am I Google? It can be really uh, confusing. Well, that's why I do the, the, 
blog posts that I do or my Instagram stuff to educate about that kind of stuff. And you just gave me another topic, which is great, which is birth control IUDs and like their impact on fertility, which by the way, on this podcast, I'm going to say it has no impact on your, ability, on your ability to get pregnant in the future. All, all of these have different mechanisms of actions. If there's anything that's preventing women from getting pregnant, it's probably beyond the medications that they're taking, something that's inherent in them or something else that's going on. Birth yeah, control pills and IUDs and stuff like that are not designed to create infertility. They're just designed to prevent- Fertility in the moment, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, is there one piece of advice that you give the most or like you would give to women who are just starting to, I don't know, learn about their own body or fertility? I think the one thing that I tell a lot of my patients is know your medical history. And I think the other thing is to track your periods, to really understand your menstrual cycles, because it's the most consistent thing that women have, I think, in their day-to-day from the time that they first menstruate to the time they have menopause. Understanding that goes a long way in your fertility, your ability to get pregnant, your your mood changes, your hormones, all that cycles around this, what we call the sixth vital sign. There's five vital signs in our field. That's the sixth most important thing we look at. And it's so important to understand that the ins and outs of it as much as you can to help provide guidance. If we don't understand it, then if the person themselves don't understand, then what's the point? Yeah. Well, what can they- the sixth vital sign? What did, what did you say the sixth vital sign is? The menstrual cycle. Oh, the menstrual cycle. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. At least that's, we can, we jokingly call it the six vital sign, but it's very important. No, it is. I think it's also trending. I'm also on this side of TikTok that has this. Maybe other people listening aren't, but people are talking a lot more about like, oh, in this phase, in your luteal phase, you do this. In this phase, like, I didn't know that was a thing. I think intuitively I was just doing that already. Oh, in this phase, You'll maybe want to be a little bit slower, have less energy in this phase. You'll have a lot of energy and you'll want to do X, Y, or Z or eat more. Or do I think that mostly I was just doing that like the week before my period, I'm so hungry. And then after I feel so energized and then, but women are, I, I think really tuning into that for the first time and like sharing information about it. You're actually very, very right. I think the beauty about social media, it's allowed a lot more communication, albeit there's a lot of misinformation out there, out there but I think the empowerment, uh, this is like a new form of we're getting information from our moms kind of thing, for women at least. This is a new like hive mentality where we can take information and start piecing it together to create some kind of cohesive knowledge. But it really takes the responsibility of a professional like ourselves to really guide people say like, listen, use Google, use TikTok. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're not sure, talk to us. This is what we were trained to do to help you. That's it. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Dr. Cohen, do you have any other questions? I, well, I, we could get to more of the silly stuff a little bit. Should we get to more? Well, oh, but I, I have, do you have a favorite OBGYN or delivery or movie or TV show that, you know, past, present? You know, I, I had a few that when I knew we were going to be talking to you, two particular movies popped into my mind. But I'm curious to hear if you have any famous delivery scenes or anything related to OBGYNs or anything. I mean, I saw Knocked Up many, many years ago, but I knew that was going to be it. I, I have, I that's probably the only one that's really come to mind. There was one from Grey's Anatomy that I watched a scene where the guy performed a 
C-section under no anesthesia in their house because something was happening and it was like this big controversial thing. I'm like, yeah, that's never going to happen ever. The the drama in that, it's fascinating, but it's it's a shame that there's not enough around it. It'd be very interesting. Um, I would have to think about that a little bit more, but those are the two that came to my mind. I have mine. Interesting about Knocked Up, though, the, the guy who played the OBGYN. And- Actually, yeah. He's... What's his name? He's also in um, The Hangover. Jong, uh, whatever oh. his name is. He's uh, a real doctor. He, he's oh, a real doctor. Yeah. I don't think he was in OBGYN, but he, and I think that was actually his first, I think that might have been his first role in Knocked Up. I'll tell you right now, actually. Wait, I'm looking him up there. Well, I looked up the cast, but I don't remember which one was the doctor. I know which one it is. Um, it was Asian, Asian guy. Asian guy, yeah. He played Mr. He was in The Hangover. It was Ken oh. Jong. Is he a Ken doctor? Jong. Yeah. He was a doctor in real wow. life first. That's and amazing. I think that was his first role uh, as an OBGYN. But the other, the uh, so so that's kind of a crazy, funny experience a little bit. The other movie that popped into my mind, not necessarily an OBGYN movie or anything, was Rosemary's Baby. No, I've never seen it. Oh, I haven't seen it either. That's an old, you know. I've heard of it. Oldish movie about people trying to bring the devil or, or Satan into the world, and, oh, good. and they got her impregnated with the devil. But crazy, wacky movie. There's the a lot one. like that. I feel like there's yeah. a lot of, where it's the devil, something with fetuses being the devil, and so many scary movies. I Have think you heard of the show The Nick with. Um, yeah. The mm-hmm. very first episode I heard was about a placenta accreta or something like that, or a placenta previa that they had to do a delivery and they were like learning about how to use cautery for the first time. And like this controversial episode was about this delivery. Another one that just popped into my head was if you saw House of the Dragon from Game of Thrones, oh. you saw the first two episodes, but the, one of the fir- few episodes was how they had to do a breach delivery and they couldn't, and they had to, I'm not going to ruin it, what happened, <laughs> like, it's like- I think I'm getting there. Actually, sh- we're showing it, it was crazy. What's and a breach that, delivery? Uh, breach is when the baby's buttocks are presenting first or legs oh. are presenting first and not the head, so- Got it. That's a whole different conversation. Well, next episode, we'll have you. I have a thousand questions for you. Um, but Knocked Up was, I was pretty young when that came out. Uh, it was 2007 it came out, and I was born in 96, if that gives context. And I saw it in theaters and was, like, <laughs> blown away. I was like, I'm never having kids. I'm never, my 9 or 10-year-old self was, like, not okay. Um, but it was such a good movie. And the first time that I understood what, you know, delivery was. So it was very informative. And then the end of Twilight was the next time she's like dying and then they're cutting her open while she's dying and they're pulling the baby and you're like, oh, okay. So then she dies, but she comes back as a vampire. So everything's fine. Right. As long as you have vampire venom to like, you know, you're good. Inject, right. That's right. And then we usually end with asking what you're consuming right now as far as TV books, podcasts, um, doesn't have to be medical, just no, what, what you're um, liking. So I went on my, I got married back in March of last year and we went on our honeymoon in June and we had seen the movie Dune 
uh, Dennis Villanueva's film. And I'm like, I got to read the book. And I didn't realize that it's six books. I'm still (laughs) stuck on the first book. So that's what I'm reading right now. And TV show, um, Sex Education, the last season just came out and I finished watching that. And we're watching Yellowstone right now on NBC. That's a pretty intense show. I didn't realize how intense it was, but it's a very, it's a pretty interesting show. So those are what we're watching right now. I have comments about all all of those things. So I'll start with the backwards order. Yellowstone, did you see the episode? I think early on, an early episode, there was one of their cows had a breach delivery, right? Did you see that episode? I saw that one. Yeah, Yeah. speaking of breach, so you made me think of that. That was pretty cool. You know, Kevin Costner and his son deliver a baby cow breach, right? And they and they they yank the legs out first. So that was kind of a cool. Pretty much the uh, same thing that we would do. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Let's pull. Yeah, and although although you guys try to turn the baby, you don't try to get the legs out, right? Yeah. So we we sometimes depending on uh, the presentation and the gestational age, we will try to flip the baby to get it um, head down, so in the appropriate position. So that's called an external cephalic version. Yeah. Is that a reason? Just since you're done, is that a reason to do a C-section? Or these days, you're pretty good at doing breech deliveries. So it's interesting. Ideally, everyone should be trained. We are trained, but there's a lot, there's risk with a breach delivery and there's a, there has to be a comfort with doing it. Um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Barry Brock, who's in my office as we share office space and he's, I think I would like to call him the king of breach deliveries. He gets a lot of consultations for that, but he has a set of rules also that he gives, like you have to meet certain criteria during the labor process. So there has to be a comfort level and be prepared. But a lot of providers end up doing C-sections on their breach patients. So mm-hmm. um, what's, what's the danger and the risk of a breach? While not common, there's the risk for head entrapment. So like the cervix needs to dilate so that the head can come out. Mm-hmm. Um, it could get stuck. That's one thing. Um, or the baby can turn into position where the legs come out first and it's not. Uh, the cord can prolapse, which means the umbilical cord can come out and cause trauma. Th- those are like few and rare, but those are things that a lot of people like myself, we get a little nervous about. So experience really plays a role here. So that's what's important. Yeah. So, and then the other show, so um, Dune, as a kid, I hated, I didn't like to read. And somehow, all I read were comic books. And somehow, the very two first books that I ever read as a kid were The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. And I don't know, and, and you know, that I read for pleasure. Yeah. And, and Dune, and the, the Dune, the first Dune book. And, and, that turned me into a reader, those two books. So I, I actually read the Dune books and saw the original Dune movie with Sting. I don't know if you know, Sting yeah. from the East played the bad guy in the original movie. But I recently reread the first Dune book and uh, because you know the movie came out. Yeah. I, I love the whole Dune series. It's, it's very well written, very well written. It's pretty cool. And then the first thing you said, what was it? Oh, Sex Education. Great show. You had great show. I re- I haven't seen the last season yet, but Sex Education is another one of those kind of shows that makes that makes sex kind of okay, you know, and talks about it. And and uh, Gillian Anderson plays the therapist. She's she's you know the mom. She's great, and it's it's yeah. a wonderful show. It's well done as well. Very very well done. I have you seen it out? I have seen an episode. I need to go back to it because the show I was watching was taken off whatever 
I was I was watching on Hulu, I think. I was watching Killing Eve and then it disappeared one day. And we were like pretty upset. You know, we were in season three or something and we're not willing to get now it's on like the AMC app, which we're not I'm not down to do that. I'm not getting new apps for shows. All these apps came about and I know you're like bill anyways that you're paying every month for like tv and everything i know i'm like i have prime hulu hbo netflix like if it's not on those four we're done sorry yeah. i love the show but we're out so i'm looking for something new maybe i should watch sex education i watched part of the twin flames documentary this week it's it's like culty if you're interested in that stuff it's um this couple basically started both a cult and a pyramid scheme for people looking for their twin flame, which is like a soulmate. So anytime someone would Google that, they'd like get on their site. And some of these girls are like 18 and they're getting coached every day. They're paying more, a little over $200 a week. And then they, if they find their twin flame, which they basically force on them, then they're coaching other people. And some of them are so miserable. They like, Oh, we met and we got married. They pressured them to get married in like two months. One of them, they made move to another state to be, I think, such a setup. Like, I think they basically trafficked her. She's like wow. 19 and the guy's 37, just got out of jail. They're like, oh, didn't someone just message you? Maybe he's your twin plant. I'm like, it's so that's crazy. So wild. It's really wild. So if you're into the culty stuff, that's an interesting, quick Netflix one. I finished a book called Ninth House, which is also like a dark fantasy. There's a second one that I'll read. And I'm also reading um, Crying in H Mart in because I needed something to read. I can't sleep if I don't have a book before bed. So okay. I'm touching all the things. And what's the podcast I started listening to? Handsome. It's three uh, comedians. I think it's kind of like- Is that about me? Is that about me? Yeah. <laughs> it's about Dr. Cohen. It's there three gay comedians that are either female or non-binary. I think it's kind of the flip side of Smartless, which I love. Um, and it's so funny. So I just, anything that can make me laugh, the world is pretty tough right now. So I'm trying so to listen. It's called Handsome? Yeah. Okay. It's good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate your thank Saturday you. morning energy that you brought here. My pleasure. And I'm already hyped up on my coffee, so ready to go. Yes. And also, where can we find your blog and your socials? For patients that want to make an appointment, it's Daniel Niku, MD, so D-A-N-I-E-L-N-I-K-U-M-D.com. And my uh, Instagram handle is Danny Niku, MD, uh, D-A-N-N-Y, Niku, N-I-K-U-M-D. You know, a lot of my stuff now is all about education and different things that we've talked about. Honestly, one of the things that I'm always interested in is someone like giving me topics to talk about um, or resurfacing old topics. So anytime. I love it. Well, we'll be sure to, we have a thousand more questions for you. So I'm sure we'll follow up, but um, I love that. we appreciate the time today so much. Thank you so much. Great to meet. Nice to meet you too. Jason. Thanks for us. And uh, go deliver some babies. I will. I will. All right. Awesome. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy. As a reminder, Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 